0: Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoy today's message.
1: Uh, We just had, we baptized like 10 people first service, and so I just shook off like an old dog, even down to the tail and ready for round two. So can we just give God a praise for having people to baptize that are choosing
0: King Jesus? Come on, stand to your feet, come on. Come on, what you praise him for, he'll do again. What you praise him for, he'll do it again. Thank you, Jesus, God. We worship you, Lord. We thank you,
1: in Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Give somebody a high five, tell them you love them. And we're gonna dive in here. Oh, yeah. Make somebody's palm red right now. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. First Peter chapter 3. We're about to get into the weeds. Y'all ready to get into some trouble? Let's get into some trouble today. First Peter chapter 3. I want everybody, I don't care if it's a device, a book, a Bible, no more spoiling y'all. Y'all get something on your lap, whether it's something and even if, and if, listen, it, you might not have anything, grab an offering envelope and pretend it's the Bible right now. <laughs> And I ain't telling you what to do, but if God so moves you to put money in it and put it in them gray buckets, I'm just going to, like, let it go, man. Just whatever. God, have your way. Uh, but everybody grabs something. I want your nose in the book. God is challenging me this year that'll challenge you to get your nose in that book and quit falling for some excuse that you don't get it and you can't understand it. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus, because the Spirit of God will guide you into all truth. And if you get in here with a community of people, guess what? They can answer some questions. They can answer some questions for you. The Bible's not meant to be read alone. It's meant to be read in community. It's meant to be read in groups. Then you can read it by yourself, and then you bring out what the treasure God deposited into you into that group. That's what it's about. So, um... There ain't no experts here, just people that are saved, filled with the Spirit of God that are working through this thing together. So I want you, I want us to get in the habit. I'm gonna start, you know, I've got all these devices. I'm a tech guy. I love little gadgets. Like I'm a gadget guy. But I'm just like, I almost brought my paper Bible. I just almost did, but I just can't quite do it yet. But I'm working that way. I think the Lord wants us to feel the Word of God and see and smell the Word. You remember your first Bible? Is the cover coming off of that thing? I mean, my goodness. I had a turquoise Bible my mom bought me in 1992. I didn't have no sense. I was out in the world, but I said, you know what? I'm going to throw this in the back of the trunk of my car. Had a 80-something Honda Accord, I think it was. I threw that Bible in the back of that car, and that that Bible went with me to the most ungodly places you ever thought about in your life. But you know what? A time came where I had an encounter with Jesus and I grabbed that old turquoise Bible out of the back of the trunk of the car and man, I marked that thing up. I have whole books of the Bible fall out of that thing. I can't even use it anymore. I think, uh, I, think I have books falling out of there that I don't even, I didn't even know was in there. You know, it's like, oh, Obadiah, what is that? Is that the, this must be a Catholic Bible or something. <laughs> Obadiah is a book? Oh, man. Oh, Habakkuk, what, no, you know. It's just, but you're trying to find your way through, you know, you're feeling your way through. So the cover came off of it. So I've got a stapler, and I stapled that thing. And then I got to running around in my, you know, late 20s, and that turquoise just it didn't match my eyes, if you know what I mean. And I thought, I need to step up my game and get maybe a black or brown Bible here, you know? So, but I still got that Bible. I got it in my bookcase. And every once in a while I get out there and I look at that thing with ripped pages and marked up. I started, the pastor told me it was okay to write and highlight in your Bible. So I'd never heard that. I didn't want to write on the sacred scripture, you know? It's like, he's like, no, man, mark that thing up. Write what God's telling you. So I started highlighting and writing and, uh. That was a bad idea because it it all got so good, I started highlighting the whole thing. I'm just like, man, I got this whole thing highlighted. but, But you're growing into this. You're growing into the Word of God. It's like you don't plant a seed and then go out the next day and just, man, it ain't sprouted, I give up. It's like you sow the seed and then there's, you don't know when it happens, but it just does. And then before you know it, it's above and then you check it the next day, doesn't even look like it's grown and you don't even know how much time passes. You go out and then look and you've got a whole tomato plant full of tomatoes and you don't know when it started and when it ended, but you just know it just kind of happened through this process of being faithful and tending to those things. And so this is how it is with the scriptures. And so don't get overwhelmed, but I'm going to say, if you don't start, you'll never start. So if you want to get good with the Bible, I'm going to tell you the best way to do it. you got to start reading the Bible. You want to be someone who knows how to pray? Guess what you got to start doing? you got to start praying. You get better by doing it. It's on-the-job training, okay? All the theory and all the stuff is great, but if you don't dive in there yourself, you're never going to grow. So I want you to get your Bible out, and we're going to work through some things today. And you're probably going to hear some things for the first time. Um... And so just don't take me outside the gates and stone me, but, um, but uh, it's truth. And it's what the authors were trying to say, not what we would have them to say, but what they would want us to hear and know. So there's uh, something in the scripture that, that it's, a, it's a rhythm, a movement in scripture that's employed at different times and it's called typology. And typology is a kind of a nonverbal prophecy. So we understand verbal prophecy when someone says something like a prophet says, you know, uh, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem and and out of the line of David. And so that's a, a verbal command that happens, that they say that before the event happens. So that's a verbal prophecy. But there's another kind of technique employed in Scripture called typology. And this is where God uses people, institutions, places, things, animals to foreshadow something about a work that he's going to do, okay? It sounds really complex and fancy, but it's really not. It's just a picture of Jesus without it being Jesus, okay? So like we see something throughout the scriptures where when the Passover lamb and that blood was applied to the doorposts of the dwellings. And if the, door, if the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorposts of the dwellings, then death would pass by and they would be able to walk in a newness of life with a new destiny and a new thing. Dude, I have to preach this thing like this or are you guys going to get in here with me? You see what I'm saying? It's like the lamb wasn't Jesus, but it was a picture of Jesus' work and what he was going to do. So, so that would be a typology. Even an animal... And what that animal's function was, was pointing to a greater reality of what Jesus was going to do. The same thing is employed with the temple, where we see all this stuff of the temple. And how many of you died on the foothills of Leviticus trying to read through the Bible, and you just said? <laughs> you know, it's like bodily emissions and different color strands of yarn and animal skins, and you're just like, Why does this even matter? But then you start to look at it and you go, oh my goodness, the temple is pointing to the intricate details of what pleases God and then points to Jesus. When Jesus comes into the Gospel of John, he just flat out tells you that he's the temple, that he's the meeting place of God, he's where the presence of God dwells, and he's the place where men can encounter God. So in John 2, they're saying, hey, look at this temple over here, and he's like, yeah, that's not that big of a deal. He's like, the real temple is gonna be uh, crucified, and in three days, it'll be built back. And they're like, how can you do that? Took 46 years to get it to like this. Jesus is like, oh, you guys don't get it. God isn't doing the building thing anymore. He's doing the people thing now. So it's a typology. So when I read about the temple, guess who it's pointing me to? Guess who it's pointing me to? Okay, there we go. So that's what we're seeing here is we're seeing these typologies. So one of them that Paul uses, Paul uses this one. He calls Jesus the second Somebody said it. Adam. Adam. That's right. The second Adam. So in other words, they take the picture of Adam being made from the mud of the ground, breathed into with the life and breath and essence of God, and going to be the representative of God on the earth. But we know the first Adam messed up, right? So Paul uses this argument in Romans 5, and he says, if the first Adam through one man, all hell broke loose and we're living in this broken world... I wonder what happens when the second Adam comes, is crucified and raised from the dead. I wonder how much of a good positive impact can happen if his one act did that much bad, Jesus' one act then trumps that and then brings that into a picture that's incredibly and unbelievably good. So we're seeing these themes all throughout. So Peter then grabs a hold of a theme that's in the scripture. And he grabs onto the flood of Noah And he grabs onto uh, a man by the name of Enoch that's mentioned in the Bible and some extra biblical works that are going that he quotes that shape the way the first century saw the demonic realm, okay? And so he grabs some of these typologies and then says, but Jesus is the one that actually did it to the fullest measure, okay? So as Peter is working through this idea to bring them into the reality of baptism, of what does it mean to truly be baptized, that he grabs onto this flood motif. Now, if you know anything about the flood, you know that was a judgment. Right? The flood is a judgment, just like Jesus on the cross. That was a judgment for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So there had to be some kind of payment, some kind of blood sacrifice to cover the sin. So it was a judgment that was placed upon Jesus, okay? But as we're looking at this judgment that's being placed, it wasn't just a judgment that the same judgment Jesus is experiencing on the cross becomes the blood that becomes shed that actually provides the cleansing for our sins, okay? So Peter grabs this motif and says, whoa, the flood isn't just a judgment, the flood is a baptism that cleans the earth and in order to cleanse the earth to make it possible for the Messiah to come through. So when we see the things of Jesus, it's not just judgment. It comes with the judgment, an act of redemption, a reality of redemption is tied with the judgment to bring you closer to him. Okay. So sometimes how many of you experience, how many of you bumped your head and had to experience some judgment? I'm gonna I just I dare to say everybody in here came to the Lord because the consequences of your decisions came back to get you I'm just telling you like that's probably how you came to the Lord I'm still waiting for this testimony You know my life was so good and so great. I just thought I might as well add Jesus in there too (laughs) That testimony
0: don't exist you butted up against the consequences of your wayward living and you got it caught up to you. It found you out. Your sins found you. And then all of a sudden you said, maybe if I call upon the grace of God that I can be saved and maybe he'll accept me. And you found out that the judgment was meant to stop you in your tracks, not to push you away from God, but to bring you near to him. It was the father the whole time saying, come here, son or I need you to stop that way of living, and I need you to turn
1: towards me once again. So that when we think about Noah, we kind of got to get out of our cultural, right? Because like Noah and Jonah seem like kid stories, right? You've read the book, and all the happy animals are in there, and everybody's smiling. It's like, dude, the whole earth got flooded, (laughs) And there was bodies everywhere. I don't think it was like this cutesy little thing that we make it into. But the Lord was up to something not, that wasn't just judgment. He was preparing the world so the Messiah could come and it could all be redeemed. So don't let the judgment of God get you to thinking he don't love you. Matter of fact, he loves the ones whom he actually corrects. And if you're finding yourself, hear me, don't clap yet. If you're finding yourself, you can't get a hold of nothing and nothing's working out for you because you're doing it your own way. You need to say, thank you, God, for stopping me in my tracks and getting me to consider what you're trying to do in my life and get outside of what everything that I'm trying to do in my own life. That the Lord loves whom he chastens. <laughs> and he's wanting good sons, not spoiled breads. He's trying to raise up a mature people who don't just get saved for the forgiveness of their sins, but actually emulate the life of Christ and begin to walk out a life that's not self-fulfilled, but gives over self and says, Jesus, I'm going to be focused on your purposes in the earth. And it's your mission that I'm following. So what does that have to do with baptism? Well, let's find out. All right. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Gesundheit, whatever that means. Hope that's not bad, I don't know, it's a different language. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. How many wanna receive that blessing? <laughs> but do not be terrified of them or be shaken." So here Peter is writing to a persecuted entity. Um, Emperor Nero has come to power and he has created a a really a local um, pervasive persecution that was happening to Christians. Um, It is said in history that a fire was started And in order to get the heat off of Nero himself, the the tradition says possibly Nero started the fire so that he could build more statues dedicated to himself. And when he built, and when he started this fire, as everything's burning, he then blames the Christians and says it was the Christians that started the fire. So now we have these Christians that are being persecuted for something they didn't do. And so now Peter's got to address these Christians that are now scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, called the diaspora, the spreading or the persecution of the Jews and Christians and being spread out and put out. And so now he's writing them and he's trying to give them hope amidst the great suffering that they're experiencing. Now, the first thing he does is, is he draws them into that suffering and he doesn't try to alleviate it. Matter of fact, he never even tells them to not to suffer. He says things like this. Why do you think the fiery trial that's trying you is strange? See, what he's doing is he's pointing our eyes back to Jesus. There never was a man better than Jesus, but who got persecuted like him? So what he's saying is, in your mind, you've got this idea that if I do everything right, I won't receive persecution. And you think that doing the right is the thing when you receive pushback that now you've done something wrong. Because that's how the devil works. The devil wants you to start doing right. Then he's going to raise up people in your life to start pushing back to get you to think that doing right isn't right. And he's trying to take that which is good and make it evil. But what the Lord is trying to do through Peter here is saying, look, look at the one that you're following. He was crucified on a cross in his 30s. In the prime of his life, he's crucified. So he's saying, don't forget, the same one that is crucified raises from the dead. So he says, don't get your eyes off of Jesus when you're in the midst of suffering. Even if it's all burning to the ground, if you still got Jesus, you got everything. You got everything. So Peter is pushing them into this reality to say, look, I know what you're going through is a lot, but the reward is so great, you cannot afford to get your eyes off of Jesus in this hour. But set Christ apart, verse 15, as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. So, look what he does here. He reframes it. He says, Look, the suffering might not alleviate, but here's what I can say if you're living right amidst the suffering, people's going to ask, Hey, what's this all about here? You should be moping more than anybody else in here. Uh, You had the boss pull you aside and tell you something that you didn't even do, and you took it on the chin and said, you're going to try to do better. Oh, did I get too real for you there? So, yeah.
0: How did you, what's that all about?
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked. And the reason why I handled it that way was so that somebody would ask, so that I would have the opportunity to brag on Jesus. But see, when you have a selfish focus and you haven't put the Lord Jesus as the Lord of your heart, you're going to be fighting for your will and your way and your everything all the time. And here's what you're going to find out. You're going to lose every single battle that you're fighting in your own strength. You'll lose every single battle that way. So the Lord's trying to grow us up to say, hey, look, don't think it's
0: strange that that you're getting hated on for doing right. This is what's supposed to happen. But what I need you to do is to keep walking it
1: out because that testimony is gonna give someone else hope and you're gonna be able to share that witness and share that testimony without even having to preach. They're gonna ask you. When's the last time somebody asked you, I want what you got. How do I get it? Think about it. Think about it. That Peter's formula for evangelism is living a way where they can't help but ask. I'm about to throw this microphone across the room right now. I can't do that though. You won't hear me. Man, thank you, Jesus. All right, now here you go. We get a little more qualifiers and modifiers here. Verse 16, how do we do it? Yet do it with courtesy and respect. Boy, we could use a whole lot of that in our country right now. Keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ, watch this, you ready? May be put to shame when they accuse you. Oh, man, come on. For it is better to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. So get this. Let your life be of such a quality that when someone brings up an accusation against you, nobody can believe it. So where the testimony is, the character and quality of your life, and their jaw ought to drop when they hear someone make an accusation. Because you're not talking about the same person that I'm talking about. So if somebody was to go to someone else and give them an accusation, would that third party say that? Or would they go, I knew it, I can believe it. Do you see what I'm saying? God's trying to teach us how to protect ourselves, but to protect ourselves through the integrity of the reality of our lives, not our words. Everybody's wanting to get everybody's words and write them down and hold them against each other and all this stuff. It's like, golly, what a crazy time. Everybody's reveling in people getting one put over on them. Like people are applauding when mighty people are getting taken down. And I'm like, who's the ones that are weeping for those parties to be repented and and to be restored? Like, Like Noah builds the ark and then gets off the ark and plants a vineyard and thinks, oh, this is great. And then he gets drunk and he's naked in a tent. It happens to the best of them, guys. I'm just here to tell you. It happens to the one guy on earth where God says, Hey, I found a righteous guy here that can build a boat. He comes off the boat and it's crazy stuff going on in a tent. I don't even know. Maybe we need to tackle that text next. I'm not sure. But one goes in, one son goes in and says, ha, ha, ha and spreads the word the two righteous sons walk in backwards
0: with a cl- with a cover and they come in and say we're going to cover up our father's nakedness we're going to cover up that which the world wants to celebrate and we're going to cover it up and we're not going to cover it up where it doesn't get found out but we're going to uh, confront things that lead to repentance not towards bitterness and nastiness and if the church is the one that the only entity in the world that has that message So if they can't get their healing in church, where are they going to get it? Who else has our kind of redemption? It ain't out there.
1: That we would be aimed at people's restorations more than their downfall. Man. It's it's a pride that tells us we're better than that. And Scripture's a consistent testimony that no, you're not. But for the grace of God, so goes you, man. So goes us. (sighs) That we would be aimed at injustice, but that we would be aimed at it in a way that's redemptive. In a way that we say, now here's a better way. Here's a better way, a way that brings wholeness and healing. I don't mean to get off on all that, but it just is what it is, I guess. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. That the Lord smiles on you suffering for doing good. That he says, I love it what uh, Tommy Tenney told me. He said, we get our faith from God's face. So if I'm getting hated on, check my heart, then i look up at God. Oh, he's smiling. Okay, that's the, that's the affirmation I needed. Okay, now I can face you. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, if you're suffering for doing evil, there's no reward in that. Some people was claiming the devil's fighting them. It's like, no dude, that's your disobedience and you don't listen to nobody. You don't repent of your sin. You don't change your patterns. Devil ain't after you. Matter of fact, he wouldn't even send a worn out devil on you because you're so messed up and so tied in with his demonic plans that he doesn't have to send anybody at you. You're partnering with him already. Man, I was a lot nicer at the early service. You You guys are getting it on the chin today. That's all right. You know, I love you. You know, I love you. Uh, Verse 18, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the spirit. In it, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Oh, look at your neighbor go, oh, what is happening here? It's getting weirder. Here we go. You ready? told you we were going to get weird. Verse 20. After they were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, as an ark was being constructed, in the ark a few... That is, eight souls were delivered through water. As this prefigured, remember the typos, the typology here. As this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven, oh man, and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. So here's what Peter is grabbing onto to let the people know this is what you're getting baptized into that Peter here uses the typology and instead of like Paul, an apostle that was his contemporary, who uses a second Adam motif, Peter grabs a different character that had shaped um, the way that the ancient people saw the supernatural realm, the unseen cosmic realm. Um, And this book was called First Enoch. So First Enoch, uh, doesn 't need to be in the Bible, but it definitely shaped the way the first century saw the demonic realm and they 're quoting it in the scriptures. Jude quotes it, James quotes it, um, Peter quotes it in first and second Peter, and so the biblical authors are grabbing first Enoch and using it to create parallels through what Jesus did through the scriptures, okay? So when he talks about him preaching to the spirits in heaven, now if you grew up like I grew up, we were taught that, well, there's different views on it, but some people believe that people got a chance to hear the gospel after they had died. Um, That was the Catholic view that they believed was happening there. Um, You might've been taught that the faithful that died in Abraham's bosom before Jesus had came that they were believing forward faith in Jesus. And so they didn't have to go to hell, but they got to go to this other place called paradise and that um, Jesus come in there, preach to the ones who are faithful. They receive the gospel and then he leads them into the heavens to be into the presence of a God. Those are modern takes. That's not what the ancient mind thought here and that's not what Peter is aimed at. Peter here grabs this concept from, from the book of Enoch, First Enoch. And what had happened was, is that in Genesis 6, when it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and thought they were attractive and then wanted to get in on their life. They were created to be a divine counsel and to help God rule the heavens and stay in the cosmic realms. Instead, they saw the power and prestige that God gave to humanity. And this is why Satan falls too, because he looks and sees a man formed out of dirt and says, I'm much more beautiful than him. How come he gets all the power and authority? That makes sense? I told you it was going to get weird. You're just going to have to go with me here. So these people in in Genesis 6, why did God send a flood to flood the entire world? That means it got really, really bad. that these sons of God called the watchers were looking down and desiring the power and influence. And so they left heaven just like Satan did and, and convinced Eve that she should follow his way and not God's. They came down and convinced humanity that God was pulling the wool over their eyes and that they needed to partner with them. And they were going to show them a quicker way to set the world straight and not go through God's plan of love, grace, mercy, and these kind of Uh, less powerful virtues we'll just say that and um we're more of a power dynamic where and so they came down and they begin to uh partner with humanity in such a way that they turned all of humanity against God and so God sends the flood and deals with those angelic fallen beings and as he deals with them Enoch tells us that he puts them in prison with chains. So Enoch begins to write and lean into this reality where where he says that basically Enoch was asked by these spiritual beings that God had confined to prison and asked those spiritual beings and asked Enoch to go before God for them and to ask them, God, would you forgive us? We apologize for ruining the whole world. So God sends Enoch back with a message and says, Enoch, tell them they're toast and they've got to stay in prison and in chains and that demonic influence will never come back to earth again. And as Enoch is telling them this, they begin to shudder and tremble with fear. So Peter grabs the concept and says, and uses a second Enoch, like a second Adam, but a second Enoch, and says, when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he was placed into the ground, traditions and creeds tell us that he goes into the pit, the place of the dead, and he preaches the Spirit, preaches by the Spirit to these spirits that are in heaven. So what Peter is trying to pull them into is this right here. Jesus was the one that goes into the heart where these demonic realm has so influenced the earth, and he reiterates what Enoch said right. and says, God's plan of salvation is still around and even though they tried to kill me I'm going to raise from the dead and so I came here to let the demonic realm
0: know that you're still changed up God hasn't changed his mind and the salvation of the world is still going to happen so you guys got to stay here but I'm rising from the dead and going to the right hand of God and I came to remind you that you're stuck here forever.
1: That's the sermon Jesus preached to the spirits that were in prison. Devil, you stay right here, and I'm popping out of here by the glory of God. <laughs> and he ascends into heaven as a illustrated sermon, the best illustrated sermon I ever preached. A man went to hell, told the devil where he could go and stay, and then pops up to the right hand of God where all the principalities and powers would be under his feet until he rules and reigns and puts everything under his feet by the gospel coming out of you and my mouth. Are you ready for that? It's why why Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? That you've been employed as a partner with Jesus to redeem the world and to bring about new creation, to bring about the Garden of Eden, to use every bit of power and influence that you have to take on the testimony of Jesus in every sphere you go into until the earth looks like heaven again. Who is sufficient for these things? You are. You are. By the grace of God, you are. So Peter is saying, no, it wasn't Enoch that was a middleman between heaven and earth. It was actually King Jesus. (laughs) It was actually King Jesus that goes in and reminds those devilish beings that God's plan is still going forward for the earth. So he takes on this picture of the baptism and says, it's just like when Noah built the ark. It looked like judgment, but it was actually a cleansing to where everything that was at the bottom was going to come up to the top. that it looked like God was pulling the wings off of flies. But God doesn't do that. When he judges, he does it in a way that redeems. He does it in a way that provides hope. And so Peter's leaning on Enoch here, and he's saying, now let me reframe this story and tell you that it's Jesus that went down there and preached the final message to those fallen angels in the underworld. And this incident was also on Peter's mind when he wrote this epistle, is that he took it and said, Jesus is the ultimate preacher to this demonic realm and all things are under his feet. So baptism looks like judgment. That every time someone's baptized, we're going to a funeral. But it's a, not a very long funeral. <laughs> that they are identifying with Jesus being placed into the ground and being lifted up into a newness of life. So every time there's a baptism, it reminds the demonic realm that I'm not staying down there with you guys. I just dropped in to tell you like King Jesus,
0: I'm going up! I'm going up with Him! And I'm leaving that legacy behind! I'm leaving the demonic realm, and I'm going into the kingdom of God, and I'm going to rise with him as I go down with him, and I'm not staying in hell with you anymore. I'm going to the right hand of God, seated with him in heavenly places, and I'm not coming back. I just wanted you to know, devil.
1: So if you're trying to get baptized today, know what you're getting into. Because you're about to pick a fight. So don't come up here being all cute and everything else. This is death and resurrection. This is blood and guts. And you just picked a fight with the devil. You just preached a sermon to the devil. Said, you can stay here. I'm going on up with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah that it would bring us to a place where we would know Jesus is Lord. And that's what we're saying. We're saying, Jesus, you're my Lord now. I ain't following the devil no more. Sin was fun for a season, but some of you in here, so low you've been dragging gravel with your front pocket. And I don't know what it's gonna take to get some of you. Thinking how beat up you gotta get. How busted up do you got to be before you get resurrected from the dead and come to King Jesus? My goodness, some of you guys are like endurance people. Can you take another lick? A lot of people thought they was going to make another run and they didn't come back. I'm trying to save somebody's soul here. And some of you guys are playing games because you think you got forever. You're playing games because you think you got forever. I'm here to tell you, you don't have forever. You got today. You got today, pal. And you can look cool in front of your friends and you can look cool and all that, but you don't have forever. You don't know what you got. And it's time. Time to get real time to tell the devil, I'm tired of you laughing at me, devil. Aren't you tired of the devil laughing at you? He talks you into stuff, and then he talks you into stuff, then you do it, and then he laughs at you and says, look how stupid you are. He's anti-everything. The devil isn't calling you on his side to be his king or general in hell. All he's trying to do is tear it all down. He's trying to burn it all down. This is, how, this is how maniacal the devil is. You want to hear how maniacal he is? He's so maniacal, he kills Jesus, which is the best thing that ever happened to the earth. But get this. The Bible says if they'd have known that the crucifixion of, of Jesus would have resulted in the salvation, they wouldn't have done it. So that tells us this. The devil was going to crucify Jesus, but if he got wind of the plan, he would have crucified everybody that tried to crucify Jesus. He isn't for you. He isn't for anybody. This is not a side thing where like the devil and Jesus are arm
0: wrestling. This thing is over. This thing is over. Jesus is in charge. He is the king of the earth. And you're blinded by the Satan himself. You've been blinded. You've been blinded. And there's somebody up here crazy enough to burn to tell you about 1 Enoch and do a little history lesson so we can actually get an understanding of what baptism means in your life. Shake it off. And give your life to God. Give your
1: life to God. How hurt are you gonna stay? Guess what? You want me to tell you about hurt? Be a pastor. I'll tell you about it. Sheep bite. And the sheep bite to the ones that you don't think are going to bite. But I'm not up here moping about it every service. I'm glorifying Jesus because I know if we could just get a hold of Him, man, we could just get a hold of Him. It's not some sob story. This is a story of the war, of the cosmic war being won by King Jesus. We've won. We've won. The early Christians, they saw baptism as a formula that renounced Satan and every demonic influence on their life. That all that goes down and stays down in the underworld with the devils. And what comes up is a resurrected soldier for Jesus. That everything the enemy Tried to bury. He ended up just planting. (laughs) And the devil thought he was burying the truth, but all he was doing was planting it. (laughs) All he was doing was placing Jesus in the ground as the Garden of Eden, the seed to the life and the fellowship of God being raised to newness from our King Jesus. It's why when Mary sees Jesus and he's resurrected, she doesn't recognize him. She thought it was a gardener. Why? Because the seed got planted. It got planted in a tomb and a Roman seal got placed on it. And I don't even care if it's an American seal placed on it. Jesus isn't staying in that tomb. The empty tomb was not for you to go in. The empty tomb was to let you know that something came out. Because they're looking for him there, right? And was he there? Oh, hey, where is he? Y- yeah, you're not supposed to go in. You're supposed to go out. And some of us are living our lives in, in tombs. And we think just because the door's kicked off, we're, we're free. No, you're still holed up in a tomb. The stone's been rolled away. It's time for you to get out of the tomb and begin to declare to the universe whose you are. And hey, y'all are getting a whole sermon series up here. Okay. We're not even gonna have Easter service now. We, I think we covered everything. Let's cancel services till after Easter. And, uh, but you guys will keep sending in those gifts and offerings and, and, uh, and, uh, and we'll catch back up after Easter since we've covered, we've covered it all today. But everything the enemy meant to cover up will be resurrected to new life. They tried to bury Jesus. They just planted a garden. That in creation, when we see Paul use this picture of of the second Adam, think about the first Adam. He was created from the dust of the ground. Actually, the scripture tells us that, that God had some rivers coming through and that the river hit the dirt and made moldable clay. So we see something happening where God creates Adam and then breathes the life into him. And that if Jesus is the second Adam, that means that God did a modeling thing in a different kind of way. That when Jesus is on the cross, a spear goes into his side and what comes out? Blood and water. That the first creation was water and dirt. Second creation is water and blood. The blood to deal with the guilt and the water to form every place necessary that Jesus became the river and he says that doesn't he on the last day the great day of the feast come to me
0: anyone who thirst and out of your belly will flow
1: well how's the river going to come out (laughs) frog gig (laughs) they thought they were gigging him little did they know they were just releasing the river to form new humanity from the dust of the earth (sighs) yeah it is good so Jesus baptism you know even Jesus gets baptized probably a good idea that we do (laughs) what would Jesus do oh yeah I guess I better oh yeah Jesus do yeah um When Jesus is baptized, there's a couple of factors I want us to get on, and then we're going to transition. But when Jesus was being baptized, the Bible says that the heavens opened, and the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came from heaven and descended like a Now where else do we read about a dove in the Bible? Nowhere, Noah. Yeah, Noah. And why did they release the dove? To make sure there was a safe place to land after the judgment. So Jesus himself is uniting with the Noah story of the flood and saying out of chaotic waters is going to come new life and a safe place to land. And God, who Jesus had never done anything at that point, he hadn't preached a sermon, hadn't done a miracle, and God still looks down and goes, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That Jesus didn't have to work for God's pleasure. He had God's pleasure, so he worked. (laughs) And so it's like, Jewish rabbis grabbed a hold of this and in the creation it says that the spirit hovered over the water. It's romantic language. Like a mother bird over a, a nest of eggs. And the rabbis, ancient rabbis got a hold of this and they saw like the world like a placenta or an empty womb. And that when Jesus started speaking to the womb, life started to develop from the chaos. And then we fast forward to Mary, when God speaks over an empty womb. And he speaks the word, which is the life and essence and character of God, into Mary's womb. She is now pregnant with the seed that's gonna redeem the earth and bring it into new creation. And here's the thing. If you've ever been in a birthing room, them some chaotic waters, is all I got to tell you. Uh, I'll tell you what, I had a whole new respect for my wife after that. Uh, I thought, yeah, I'm not very tough, let's just put it that way. And uh, But then here's this chaotic moment, screaming and you know, crazy stuff. Second one was there was was some painkillers involved, so there was a lot less. But the first one, no painkillers. This was just. And all of a sudden we go from chaos to new life. And I'm holding this life that I'd never met, but I'd already spoke to my wife's stomach. So we had met, but through a veil. She already knew my voice had already spoke the promises that the chaotic waters were already being settled by the voice of a father so that when she came out it wasn't like I'd never met her it was like we'd known each other all along so here I'm holding a baby that I've never met that I've just figured out what to call it (laughs) (laughs) and she's not doing anything but wiggling and screaming and my words are this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased that with every baptism we're declaring war and saying we're not staying down there with you devil but we're coming up to hear the affirmation of the father that says, this is my beloved son or daughter, and you're now in the family of Jesus.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.